You are listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, December 6th. I'm Portia Cook. And I'm Kira McKinley. And you're tuned into KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with information on Colorado State University's presidential finalist. After that, Portia covers local news with information on the euthanization of local prairie dog colonies. Then I give you your daily dose of music, entertainment, and events news with this week's top sounds of TikTok. After that, you'll hear an episode of the We Believe You podcast discussing the intersection of fat phobia and reproduction. Then I'll cover environmental news today with updates on an inspection at the Suncor oil refinery. After that, I go over national news with updates on the U.S. men's soccer team performance at the World Cup. Then stay tuned for your CSU sports updates with you and Pert. And to conclude today's show, I will take a look at what Fort Collins has in store for the weather this week. The following RMR broadcast was pre-recorded today, December 6th. Let's move right into campus and local news. I'm Kira McKinley reporting your campus news for December 6th. Last Friday, the Colorado State University Board of Governors announced their presidential finalist, Amy Parson. According to the Coloradan, Parson is, quote, 48 and has spent 16 years working for the university in various roles, most recently as the executive vice chancellor of the CSU system, which includes the main campus in Fort Collins, as well as a campus in Pueblo, the online CSU Global University, and a new Spur campus in Denver, end quote. Parson is also a Colorado native and CSU alum, according to the Coloradan. According to a statement from CSU Source News, once the Board of Governors announces a finalist, there must be a 14-day waiting period before the finalist can enter an employment agreement and a start date can be made. If this waiting period holds up, it seems we should hear if Parson is officially named the next CSU president by December 15th. In Colorado, the minimum wage is about $13 an hour, which is what some students at Colorado State University are being paid. But according to MIT, this isn't even close to the livable wage needed in Fort Collins. MIT stated that the livable wage in the city is about $18 an hour, which makes the current minimum wage about $5 shy of a livable one. The city of Fort Collins will be instating new minimum wage in the city of $15 an hour in January. This change will also go into effect at Colorado State University as well. The university housing and dining services will be increasing their pay rate to $15 an hour, which is $1.50 more than they were originally making. According to the Collegian, Jane Scott, the residential dining services project and programming manager said, quote, Moving to $15 an hour benefits all of our student team members and has increased our retention. The increase helped residential dining services hire new students and retain the talented individuals who are already employed with us, end quote. While the Collegian found that this change in wage is intended to help the university keep current employees and hire more, this increase in wage will hopefully help those working at the dining halls make more of a livable wage as well. Thank you for listening to my campus news updates. Now on to local news with Portia Cook. I'm Portia Cook reporting your local news for Tuesday, December 5th. A Fort Collins police officer who was being investigated for false DUI arrest has resigned following an internal investigation. On December 2nd, in a video posted to the department's Facebook page, Fort Collins Police Chief Jeff Swoboda said that the officer, Jason Hefferman, is no longer with the department. Your KCSU News team previously reported that Hefferman's DUI cases came under scrutiny earlier this year after an internal investigation revealed at least nine DUI cases involving Hefferman in less than a year 
resulted with blood tests that came back with no alcohol or drugs present in the person's blood. After further investigation, it was determined that Fort Collins Police Services officers made 504 DUI arrests in 2021, and 11 of those cases had blood test results returned with no drugs or alcohol found. Haferman was involved in eight of the 11 cases where the blood results came back with no drugs or alcohol. Chief Swoboda said he had a meeting scheduled with Haferman to communicate that he, quote, no longer had confidence that this officer could perform the duties to the level that I was comfortable with, end quote. But Haferman resigned before their meeting. In the video posted to the department's Facebook page, Swoboda went on to say that, quote, this officer let our community down and that hurts, but I promise we're going to continue to work with you to be a better police department tomorrow than we were today, end quote. Information from this story comes from the Coloradoan. In other news, Fort Collins is seven months into the plastic bag ban, and here's how it's going. In 2021, about 60% of Fort Collins voters passed an ordinance for the city to ban single-use plastic bags in grocery stores. The ordinance required 19 grocery stores to get rid of plastic bags and instead charge a 10-fence C for paper bags. According to Molly Saylor, lead sustainability specialist for the city, the bag band is going better than anyone could have expected. Saylor told the Coloradoan, quote, the community has made the switch a lot faster than we had anticipated. Saylor went on to tell the Coloradoan, we think from the numbers we do have that we're around 85% reduction, meaning that only about 15% of shoppers are still using single bags. As for how the data is being collected, Saylor said grocers are required to update the city on how many bags they are selling. Using that data, the city estimated an 85% reduction in bag use. Another indication the program is doing well, Saylor said, is that less money than expected has come in from the 10 cent fee associated with single-use paper bags. So far, the city has brought in almost $120,000, which is $120,000 less than what they expected. So where do the 10 cents from each purchase bags go? Well, every 10 cents that is collected from a paper bag sale is split between the city and the grocer, with the city receiving 6 cents and the grocer receiving 4 cents. That would mean of the money collected so far, $80,000 has gone to grocers. The money is supposed to be used on program implementation, program awareness, and consumer education for both the city and the business. Information from this story comes from the Coloradoan. In other local news, following a recent prairie dog colony euthanization, Fort Collins residents are asking why relocation of the prairie dogs wasn't an option. The prairie dog colony was housed on the property of the Hearts of the Rockies Church, which periodically euthanizes prairie dogs on their property due to, quote, health, safety, and property concerns about the prairie dogs migrating from the church land, end quote. Pastor Melissa St. Clair told the Coloradoan they again euthanized a prairie dog colony on their property again this fall. On November 13th, about a dozen protesters gathered outside of the church in protest of the euthanization. Local resident Stacy Spellerberg told the Coloradoan, quote, I was just disappointed that a church or anyone would choose to euthanize healthy animals that are thriving and are an important part of our ecosystem. Spellerberg went on to say that it was especially frustrating because she knew of people who had successfully relocated colonies before. End quote. The church is donating its land to the Heartside Hill housing project, and some protesters were also upset about the fumigation because they felt it was tied to the housing project. 
Care Housing is leading efforts to redevelop the property as Heartside Hill, an 80-unit housing development that will serve low-income families and people with disabilities through a partnership with La Arch Fort Collins and Habitat for Humanity. As for the church, Pastor St. Clair told the Coloradoan that, quote, We have chosen to prioritize the health and safety of church members and neighbors, as well as the health and safety of the Heartside Hills neighbors we haven't yet had the chance to meet. The church said in an email to the Coloradoan, Living in this world can be complicated. We do our best to bear witness to the presence of God in all that we do and say. When we cause pain, we seek to acknowledge that, end quote. That's all for your local news. I'm Portia Cook, and I'll be right back with your music events and entertainment news after the break. Stay tuned for Vibin' and Thrivin' with me, DJ Adair, next up on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And I'm back with your music events and entertainment news. In music news, Billboard's Top 100 has your top five songs on the board this week, and they are full of holiday cheer. Coming in at number five on the Billboard's Top 5 songs of this week is Jingle Bell Rock by Bobby Helms. In the number four spot is Unholy by Sam Smith and Kim Petras. Taking the number three spot is Rocking Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee. Christmas Queen Mariah Carey is taking the number two spot with her song, All I Want for Christmas is You. And coming in at the number one spot of the Billboard's top five songs of the week is, you guessed it, Taylor Swift with her song, Anti-Hero. This will mark Swift's sixth week at number one on the top 100 Billboard charts. Information from this story comes from Billboard's Top 100. In other news, let's take a look at what sounds are trending on TikTok this week. Of course, we have sounds from the Christmas queen Mariah Carey herself with the It's the Time Trend, an original sound by Noah Schnapp. It's time! And following behind Mariah Carey, we have Ready to Give Up, an original sound by Jackie VC. In five, six, seven, eight, I am ready to give up. CSU, we are almost done with the semester, however, so there is no giving up just yet. Information from that story comes from later. In other news, the man involved in the shooting of Lady Gaga's dog walker during a robbery of her two dogs last year was sentenced Monday to 21 years in prison, according to today's news. James Howard Jackson, 20, pleaded no contest to the attempted murder charge, but was immediately sentenced to prison. In August, Jackson was mistakenly released from custody in Los Angeles and was recaptured and arrested in Palmdale, a city north of Los Angeles. 
Jackson was charged in the February 24th, 2021 shooting of dog walker Ryan Fisher. Fisher was walking Lady Gaga's French Bulldogs in Hollywood when he was robbed by three people, officials said. Lady Gaga's two dogs were stolen and Jackson allegedly shot Fisher in the chest with a 40 caliber handgun. Fisher did survive. Looking for things to do, you can find the latest local events on the events calendar at kcsufm.com under the calendar dropdown. That's all for your music events and entertainment news. I'm Portia Cook, and now an episode of the We Believe You podcast discussing the intersection of fat phobia and reproductive health. And welcome to this special episode of the We Believe You podcast. Today, we're taking a small departure from our typical episode to bring you all a talk from someone who is just amazing. Sonali Rashatwar is a sex therapist and health at every size activist. We hosted her in the fall of 2020 for CSU's Body Acceptance Week. And this talk is part of her time here. Originally, we recorded this hoping to start a different program led by our very talented Angelica Murray Olson. Angelica has recently left the WGAC, and we didn't want to lose this very important conversation. So I hope that you all enjoy and learn from the knowledge that Sana Lee is about to share with all of us. First of all, thank you for having me. For those who have never heard of me or my work, my name is Tanali Rashatwar. I am popularly known on Instagram as the Fat Sex Therapist. But outside of my public persona, I am a queer, non-binary, bisexual cat mom and plant dad. I am an overwaterer. I love to collect art. I really love portraits and art is really important to me. So I'm always looking at beautiful folks of color drawn in charcoal or watercolor, no matter what room I'm in. Professionally, which is how most folks know me, I am a trained sex therapist. And so what that means is I work with folks who are experiencing what are typically called sexual dysfunctions. Dysfunction typically in like the white heteronormative, cisnormative sense are typically thought of as things like erectile dysfunction or vaginal dryness, uh, really like physiological conditions. The perspective that I bring to my sex therapy is really different because I think that when the population that I come from, which is like queer and trans folks of color, that when we experience sexual dysfunction, it sometimes can look like a low libido because we're really depressed at the failures of the current carceral state. That like we're really depressed at our local and federal uh, lack of response to our calls to defund the police. And that impacts how much pleasure we'll experience or how much sexual freedom we can access. Uh, so that's what I, I do that's a little bit different. I'm based in Philadelphia. And my business partner, Paula Vesetti, and I, we are both queer South Asians and we co-own the Radical Therapy Center. And what we do there is, you know, very similar thread. Uh, we politicize our therapy. So we try to bring systems of oppression into the therapeutic space. And we remind our clients every day when they're struggling with internalized capitalism because it looks like things like productivity shame or shame around rest. Uh, shame around giving themselves pleasure, things that feel good and taste good. So that's a little bit of me in a nutshell. My niche specialty within sex therapy 
is that I'm really interested in looking at the ways that diet culture and rape culture overlap. And I'm really interested in helping folks understand how they can work through anything that's causing them shame, like sex shame or food shame, and how to treat that using pleasure, how to like give themselves permission to access pleasure as a way to release themselves from the experiences of shame. I think when I'm working with folks who are having a hard time understanding what phobia feels like, one of the easiest examples I can give is when someone who's even, maybe not even politically fat or socially would be labeled as a fat person, experiences going to the doctor's office and having a medical experience, a symptom, a condition, belittled and kind of blamed on body size, blamed on someone's experience of fatness. And when that happens, what we're experiencing is what we like to call medical fat phobia. So medical fat phobia is this experience of when our body size is kind of blamed for all of our ailments and the fat itself is considered the panacea that if we just cure the fat, if we just remove the fat, then all of the ailments will just evaporate along with it. It's actually pretty lazy medicine though, because we can't just treat fat people like there's a thin person trapped inside them. And once we release that thin person, then we can just treat thin people. That's actually not appropriate science. (laughs) We have to maybe develop. No, I can assure you, I have been fat all my life. And I can assure you there is not a thin person inside me trapped in there. What we need is actually to push the medical profession to create new forms of treating people based on who they are as individuals, which is so hard to even have to say out loud. But I want us to dismantle is actually the way that science has been authorized to produce knowledge in order to create all these studies that are really maybe sometimes only measuring the health experiences or symptoms or treatments on cisgender, able-bodied, white men or women, and then kind of generalizing those treatments for the rest of the population. And when we do that, who we fail is everyone else who is not from that narrow subset of the population. And that's what we're seeing with medical fat phobia, that actually disproportionately, it is folks of color who are not thin. It is disproportionately folks who are not rich who are not thin. So what we see here is that poor folks, um, POC, poor POC are experiencing a lot of these really negative health outcomes because of classist, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, fatphobic, racist medicine and science, and not actually our bodies experiencing poor health outcomes. It's a lot harder to be fat going to the doctor because of a doctor's medical racism, just being fat or being a not white person. Yeah, so what we're seeing now is that BMI, as it has been used in the last decade, BMI has been used as a way to gatekeep folks from even receiving treatment for having a positive COVID diagnosis. This was first reported back in March that a high BMI score was being used to prevent and decide whether or not someone would get access to a ventilator and ventilator treatment. And so what we know based on how COVID treatment goes, not getting a ventilator is basically deciding whether or not someone could survive their COVID symptoms. And so what we can predict is that the long-term effects of this are going to look like seeing a lot more disabled folks 
having died from a COVID diagnosis and a lot more fat folks dying from having a COVID diagnosis and folks blaming fatness or disability itself for that death sentence instead of the way that medical access, medical intervention was gatekept. Also, this assumption that like, just because I'm at home, I have like ample free time that like, just because I'm working from home that I'm resting while I'm at home, right? Like now we have to kind of carve out workspace within our home space so that we can have some kind of separation between work and play. It kind of assumes that like surviving a pandemic should be business as usual, that like surviving the largest civil rights movement in the experience of humankind is, you know, business as usual. We should just be able to like go back to our regular work. It's actually impossible. And it does take up a lot of brain space. I've had a number of clients who have experienced an uptick in their insomnia symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and GI symptoms due to having to survive a pandemic and now four-month Black Lives Matter uprising. So reproductive justice is really about who has access to create the kind of families that they want, the way that they want them to look, how safe that family will be, whether or not that family will be able to have you know, access to all of the, the financial freedom, the health freedom, the sexual freedom that they need in order to have the happiest life that they want, to live as long as they want. And reproductive justice wants us to consider what are all the barriers that that family is going to experience in order to keep them from living the happiest life that they want. So when we think about reproductive justice and center it around folks of color, fat folks, we think of really different issues than we would with typical reproductive justice conversations. We might think of, you know, typically folks would think of like abortion access or whether or not folks can get access to birth control. These are definitely reproductive justice issues, but those primarily affect white women. And we assume that just because they primarily affect white women, that they generalize and affect everyone else too. And many times that is the case. But if we instead recenter the whole conversation around folks of color, um, and in this case, your question specifically is about fat individuals, um, what are the problems that folks specifically experience? And what are the things that are barriers to prevent them from creating the families that they want? Because many times, especially for families of color, the issue isn't, you know, how do I get access to terminate a pregnancy? It's what are actually all societal conditions that are keeping me from having the family that I want? A vast majority of folks who go for abortion procedures and pregnancy termination under the right conditions would have loved to keep that pregnancy. Um, if they had the right social supports, money, if police brutality wasn't an issue, if there were social structures and support nets to, to provide for that family. So I think about fat folks, I think about how in certain states, a parent's fat body can provide legal grounds to terminate someone's parenting rights because fatness is not considered a legal protection. It's not considered like race or gender in the same way. I think of a case in the UK when someone's custody was terminated by the state because their parenting was not seen as healthy enough or not disabled enough, so abled enough in order to raise that kid. Uh, we see this with work protections as well. Uh, and this, this case also came out of the UK. A fat employee wasn't able to tie a preschooler's shoe and so was terminated by the preschool. And so because fat people are not considered a protected people under local mandate, uh, they were fired from the job and, and that firing was not considered protected. But what we could consider instead are someone else could have tied that shoe, like 
the same way that we would protect a, a disabled person and help them to be able to keep their job. Like, yeah, maybe there's like a couple of things I couldn't do as a fat person, but that doesn't mean that I don't deserve that job or that I don't need that job or that I'm not capable of having that job. Uh, so we think about the weight limit with plan B that folks over, I believe it's like 150 or 180 pounds, something like really absurd that plan B itself is not seen as medically effective or might not be effective on someone above that weight limit. And so to me, what that means is that, you know, there were at least dozens, maybe even hundreds of people that were responsible for creating that one pill that we now see in drugstores that we can now get for free in some places over the counter. And so I, I have to think about all these dozens of people and their conceptualization of all people who have uteruses. They were thinking that the vast majority of people would be able to receive access to this pill within this weight class. Or they were intentionally creating a pill that would not allow everyone to be able to access for free or cheap control over their own bodies. I feel like that's one of the biggest issues that I think of. The way that weight and the way that medicine is created, the way that procedures are deemed effective on certain body types. They're often practiced on a certain range of weights, and they don't even conceptualize what it would look like on patients who are in larger bodies. They don't get to practice, so they don't know what it looks like. They assume it's going to be abnormal. And so instead of trying or creating a new procedure, they're just like, we can't do it. You've got to lose weight so that you can fit our models instead of creating new ones. It's really a projection from medical professionals onto their fat patients. They're projecting like, I feel inadequate because I was not given training on the full range of weights that my patients will come in. I was only given training for this range of weights. So I really need you to like change yourself so that you can fit within my expertise. I was like, actually, you know what? Maybe you're not the right doctor for me. I need to go see someone who does have a larger range in expertise than you do. Health at every size care is now seen as a specialty. Like to be able to treat all people is seen as a specialty. It's ridiculous to me because fat folks, you know, it's called the obesity epidemic because there are so many fat people. So it begs me to ask the question, like, if the majority of people in the U.S. are fat, then why on earth are we still tailoring medicine to only thin people? It just doesn't make sense to me. This is a reframing that's been really important in me learning to love my body the way it is without changing a single thing and offering it respect and admiration the same way that I would offer, you know, any other thing that I inherit. Like there is this like silly thing that my mom has in her home that I told her I, I really want to inherit from her. And it's like a paper towel rack. Like it's very silly. It's very Americana. There's a goose painted on it. There's carnation pink hearts and there's nothing special about it. It's just like a wooden paper towel rack that you would mount onto a wall. But because I remember it, I have like images of it from childhood. I remember it fondly. And the way that I would treat that heirloom with, with such tender love, the way that I would look at any flaw or paint fit in that paper towel holder, I would look with like astonishment or like, wow, this paper towel rack really survived the test of time. And like, it was made well and it, it held up. I want to look at my body the same way because we think about epigenetics, we think about generational trauma. When my mom was 
gestating in my grandmother's womb, you know, almost six years ago. My mother was born with all the eggs she'll ever have in her lifetime. So I spent time in my grandmother's womb. And so I have to think that, you know, there's some kind of connection bridging those three generations. And I have to find some gratitude, some like good reasons why my body looks the way it does. Because, you know, I could find a hundred reasons, you know, leaving my home, a hundred reasons why other people will tell me that my body shouldn't look the way it does. My body shouldn't be this fat. It should be more toned. It should be more slim. It should be more thin. It should be stronger. But what I want to tether myself to is that like, I come from a line of fat people. While I am the fattest in my family, my family is fat. I'm not abnormal in my family. Like We're pretty fat. And so I have to imagine, okay, for a lot of folks, like body love doesn't feel really accessible. Like it's hard for me to imagine me loving my body. I'm like, okay, fine. Let's not jump to love. What if we try the baby step of gratitude? How can we find gratitude in your body as it is? And I have to think that, okay, if I can find pieces of gratitude for why I'm fat, you know, my arms are really plushy and they're really soft and my sister loves to lean on it in long road trips when we would go down to South Carolina. My sister would take naps on my plushy, soft arms and shoulders. And she would choose my shoulder over the cold car window because my arm is warm and soft and tender. And she can like cozy up and snuggle up in it. So I have to find ways that my fat is good and useful and protective. And I think about, you know, if we politicize it, I think about how my grandmother survived cross-continental migration. She survived British colonialism. She survived partition. She survived a lot of things where being fat helped her to stay alive as long as she's wanted to stay alive. And I have to imagine the same reason. I'm probably this fat because if famine were to happen again, I'd have a better chance of surviving. <laughs> if genocide were to happen again, I would have a better chance of surviving because I've got surplus kind of built into my body. Uh, I'm warmer in the winter and I'm not cooler in the summer, but we're working on it. The long-term work of healing from sexual trauma involves integrating that experience into the rest of our lives. So a lot of the early work that I do with my clients who are survivors is, you know, not continuing to wish that they could like cut off their trauma as if it was like a limb of their body, but instead, like, how do we understand that this limb as necessary in our whole, the whole patchwork of our lives? So it's a constellation that needs to be integrated into the rest of our universe. It's just one constellation. And also to remember that that experience, while it should not have happened, and while it was painful and damaging in a lot of ways, also provided really useful data to us that we need for the rest of our lives. Some of the data is really deep truths and knowledge about the world that survivors really understand in very deep and intimate ways that not all people have our best interest in mind. Only I know what is actually right for me. Like Only I can have my best interest in mind. I must be skeptical of others' intentions, that I have to trust myself and the decisions that I make for myself. I have to listen to my gut, my body, and my intuitive knowledge has a lot of wisdom that sometimes I'm trying to like override and shut down. Maybe I could benefit from, from listening to and really paying attention to. 
So a lot of the long-term work has a lot to do with like embodiment, coming back home to ourselves, finding value in that body wisdom and respecting and honoring it. I don't romanticize the way that I talk about my elders or my ancestors, because I know we are not all saints. I know there are folks in my lineage who must have had a damaging castus lineage because in my family, my mom's side is upper caste and my dad's side is lower caste. So I know that my mom's side of the family has had things like servants in their homes, which means that they're benefiting from casteism and they're exploiting someone's labor tremendously and their social status in the world in order to exploit their labor. So I, I do not romanticize my family when I use that analogy of heirloom. There's absolutely still conflict in the way that I even relate to my mother and grandmother, even in that story that I was talking about. My grandmother was who my mother inherited her body shame from. My grandmother is extremely colorist, extremely fatphobic. Even in her 80s, she's still concerned about how much she weighs. You'd think someone who has seen the better portion of a century, and you'd think she'd have you know, more interesting things to share than how much she weighs every day. Those things still are like really strong coding that she had inherited. So even for those of us who have conflict in our families and experienced trauma in our families, our families are not sites of deep love or appreciation or respect. That narrative is still for us. The narrative of how our body has inherited things that we're not totally responsible for. The body can still be an heirloom. Our bodies can still be something that we've inherited, even if there's conflict around it. A lot of what we don't transform within our lifetime will just get transmitted to the next generation. So we have a decision to make. Do I want to transform this narrative that I've inherited or do I want to transmit it? That's our decision to make. Our elders didn't understand how powerful they were and really thought that they were, you know, not powerful enough to challenge systems. And so what they did was they passed down that work to us for a generation who could decide, yeah, I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough to push back and push against the system and demand change. You know, I find it actually pretty powerful. My mother didn't, she understands what structural fat phobia is. She understands and taught me really explicitly that like, it would be harder for me to be fat because it would be hard to find a male partner. It might be hard to advance in my career. It might be hard to get pregnant. And maybe because of medical neglect or maybe because of myths around fertility. My mom and my grandmother didn't think that they were strong enough to push against these systems, right? And that's why they teach us how to fall in line, um, how to assimilate. And, and you're right, that is a coping strategy. That is a way that we can like survive the system by learning how to like fit into the existing structure. But we get to decide. I think it's actually quite powerful that we get to decide for ourselves that collectively we can create the skills to push back and demand something better. For the vast majority of us, that stuff is out of our hands. For our body size and whether or not we're going to acquire disease, about 80% of that relies solely on genetics. The other 20% is like lifestyle factors, what we eat, what we have access to, you know, whether or not our class allows us the time and energy and disposable income to devote extra, you know, income or time to maintaining the project of health. 
But for the vast majority of us, the project of maintaining a healthy looking body is like something that's only afforded to elites and like class because they've got the disposable income and time to do it. The rest of us are just trying to survive. I see body image often used as a, another way to keep someone trapped in this false belief system that their body uh, or that their personhood is unworthy. That I've worked with folks, I've worked with a client who I can think of in the last few years who was experiencing what I would label as body image abuse. And this was a client who had recently survived sexual assault. And her partner knew it, her boyfriend knew it. And her boyfriend, three weeks after the assault, had said to her, like, hey, I noticed you're not going to the gym like you usually do. And she was like a conventionally attractive white woman. And he had said to her really explicitly, so like really not mincing any words, saying, hey, if if I don't see you in the gym um, pretty soon, this relationship really isn't going to be one that works for me. That like the way you look is really important and really conditional on whether or not I'm going to love you, have affection for you, want to stay in this relationship with you. Uh, so I identify that as body image abuse because in this instance, her body, her body size, body appearance, aesthetics, attractiveness, desirability was being monitored and weaponized against her in order to tell her that this is the determining factor on whether or not she was worthy enough to see in a relationship with that. She was being taught that if she was not seen as desirable by him, then who, who will she date? Who will be the next person who she'll be able to date if her desirability is so fragile and uh, requires such constant maintenance, even when she is depressed and down and anxious and struggling with really intense, acute traumatic symptoms of like hypervigilance and having difficulty sleeping, having difficulty eating. It was just really unempathetic, unkind, and brought to her attention that it was not a good relationship for her. But she also had a really hard time telling herself that she deserved to leave. She felt really like, she felt really caged, trapped in that relationship. This is often one of the primary ways that a, a survivor or a victim will be convinced that they can't trust their own body. And this is the, the deeper work of what diet culture and rape culture are trying to convince non-men of. Diet culture affects everyone, all genders, but rape culture specifically is trying to convince non-men that we can't trust our own bodies that our sexuality is too scary and like unwielding and unpredictable and that we're too ravenous, that's not good, uh, that we, we shouldn't be able to listen to our own bodies and give ourselves what we need. And so many times for perpetrators, someone who's manipulating another person, they might say, uh, are you sure you should have that second portion? Um, I think one's good enough. Or they'll say, I'm really concerned about your health. I'm really worried about you. Meanwhile, they're not really asking for like your blood panels. They're not really like asking if you even want that kind of help. They're kind of assuming that they're responsible for you. And so what's missing there is like consent, informed consent. So us as an individual offering our partners uh, an opportunity to say, uh, actually, hey, I'm pretty good at managing my own body and my own health and my own weight. But what I would love your help on is maybe talking about our relationship or whether or not we feel emotionally connected or sexually satisfied and I'm good 
I don't, I don't need you to micromanage what I'm eating or how much exercise I'm getting or whether or not you think what I'm doing is healthy or good for me. I got that. I can handle that myself. Thank you. So if we haven't been in the relationship too long, then what's good about that is that we might not have been subject, we might not have experienced so much gaslighting that we can't trust ourselves anymore. Hopefully at that point, we, we can still hear our own internal voice. And, you know, even if our own internal, like our gut, our primitive brain is only telling us information like, um, maybe it's not even giving us a script of what to say or how to like protect ourselves, but the only data it's giving us is like exclamation point, that doesn't feel good. Like my partner said this thing to me and exclamation point, uh, we don't like that. It didn't feel good. Didn't sit right. I don't know what, I don't know why I can't really understand why it just, I know it didn't make me feel happy to hear that thing. And getting that exclamation point is really good data. Cause that means that you have some connection to your gut, to your like intuitive sense, to your body wisdom. And what can be really helpful is to make sure that you have community. So like even community can mean one friend who you're talking to outside of the relationship where that one friend can support what that and help you uncode what that asterisk means or what that exclamation point means. Having a community is really important because it helps us to uh, kind of practice and like role play. You know, what are the things that I can say to my partner? These are the typically the things that they say to me. How can I challenge that? How can I kind of defend myself and protect myself? And community is so important in that because also uh, we need like accountability buddies sometimes. If we are really prone to believing someone else believing someone else when they gaslight us to not trust our own bodies or our own intuition or our own needs. Sometimes community or that one friend outside the relationship can help hold us accountable and say, now you told me last week you were going to break up with that person because the conversations were not going well. They were not respecting your boundaries. They were still pretty fat phobic to you and basically didn't want to change, didn't want to grow or transform in the ways that you were asking them to. So that person on the outside is really important because they can help hold you to your own internal needs and remind you, this is something that's really important to you. You actually really were on the track of having a better relationship with food or sex or pleasure or with your own body. You're on the right track, but um, this relationship is kind of sidetracking you. So I think those are two things that are really important, like being able to listen to ourselves Having that internal connection through our own like gut and body wisdom, and then also having folks who are taking care of us outside the relationship, so that we're not just experiencing this in in silence, that no one knows what's going on. I'm gonna give two like a pleasure practice and a gratitude practice. So creating a pleasure practice is something that is really helpful when we want to get back in touch with that body wisdom. And body wisdom is really just you having the ability to listen to what your your body is asking you for. I know when I haven't had a vegetable in a while, my body is kind of like, Sonali, please eat a cucumber. Like there's just this gentle whisper somewhere deep in my body, like begging for a crunchy vegetable. Because I do really enjoy, you know, all kinds of food, cake, cupcake, donuts, icing right out of the jar. Fine. Also. Yeah. And salads and cucumbers and all kinds of things. So really listening to my body to ask, to sit and listen and ask it, what do you want? What are you craving? And to prioritize that. So a pleasure practice can just be literally a daily moment when you ask yourself, what do I really want? 
And so that can be around food. It can be around your to-do list. What do I really want to do on my to-do list next? What chore do I really crave to complete today? Or it could be around sexual pleasure. You know, what will I really find sexually gratifying? You know, what kind of porn do I want to watch today? What book do I want to read today? Maybe I want to read before bed. What are the things that are going to put a smile on my face and make me feel just a little boost of joy in my day? I know I really like to look at clouds. There's some kind of like fleeting beauty about seeing a cloud, like a really beautiful cloud formation that's like really fat and plump and fluffy. Because if you were to look back at that cloud, you know, two minutes later, it will have expanded and look really different. So there's something really beautiful about clouds to me. And so I like to take photos of clouds. I like to just like, you know, take a walk and especially at sunset, look at the clouds. So that's something that I think of throughout the day. I know that right around sunset, I will like to look up at the sky or take a walk. So things like that, like how do we kind of build in moments in our day for pleasure, for things that just bring a smile on your face? And they don't benefit anyone else in the whole world, just you. So pleasure practice. And the second one is a gratitude practice. So this can be especially helpful if self-love feels hard or like um, just pure admiration for the self feels hard. Gratitude is kind of like a backdoor way into offering yourself something kind that you can say. Because within capitalism, we are really used to seeing our bodies as functional tools. We're really used to seeing our body as something that we use for a larger productive purpose. So sometimes it's easier for us to come up with reasons why we're grateful for the body. And so gratitude practice can look like in a journal, writing down three things that you're grateful for. And it could be about your body, it could be about your personality, it could be about your skill sets, it could be about anything be aesthetics it could be your music taste what are three things that you find gratitude for gratitude practice can be used especially in specific moments when you experience shame so for my clients who experience sex shame especially immediately after they masturbate we're going to treat that like moment of sex shame with this gratitude practice so i want us essentially to be able to remove that shame that they experience with just gratitude over time And so the first couple of times it might feel strange, but immediately after masturbation, what I would encourage, or just solo sex, just self-pleasure of any kind, really, because you can experience food shame after eating a cookie. So you could do the same thing literally anywhere. You You don't have to have sex for sure. I recommend like some kind of physical touch that's really gentle and sweet, maybe like a gentle hug or like a gentle caress or even like this face hold went viral on TikTok a couple months ago. Just like holding your face really gently and like saying something really sweet to yourself. So I know that one thing that I really like to do is I like to thank myself. I like to say, thank you, Sonali. And it always makes me smile because it feels like I'm saying it out loud to like my inner child, someone who really needs to hear it. This moment alone, especially after something like eating or a solo sex, can move you to tears. And that's totally fine and normal. Because if we are spending a lot of our day, you know, not really tethered to the body, that moment after orgasm or after enjoying a cookie could really bring us back into the body and release some feelings sometimes. So it's actually quite common to release an emotion, have a good cry, and that would be totally normal too. So play your practice and a gratitude practice. 
All right. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email WGAC at colostate.edu. That's WGAC at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in the podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more information on KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening. Five hundred people tune into KCSU every week. Do you want them to hear you? Integrating into the Northern Colorado music scene can be difficult, and KCSU is here to make your life easier. Whether you're a nationally touring or local band, KCSU invites you to submit your music to KCSU's digital submission form. Find the form at kcsufm.com. In environmental news, Hawaii's largest volcano erupted on November 28th. And now the lava from this eruption is threatening one of the nation's main highways. Despite this threat, the nation will likely not seek any ways to potentially prevent the flow of lava from reaching the highway. Instead, if the lava does prove to be a danger to the highway, the nation will shut it down. A Hawaiian citizen, Ueka Mali, who is a professor at the University of Toronto, said that the country is more accepting of this natural disaster and is looking at it as something that needs to be contained and not suppressed. Mali pointed out that people should be more concerned about unnatural environmental disasters, such as pollution from tourism, chemical pollution, and more specifically a petroleum spill at the United States Naval Base in Hawaii. Information from this story comes from CNN. For more information, visit their website. The European Union is drafting new legislation that could, quote, outright ban some plastic usage, like hotel mini toiletry bottles, single-use cups, and cutlery in restaurants, and single-use packaging for fruits and vegetables, end quote. This is according to Now This Earth News. 
Single-use plastic can be very harmful for a number of reasons. According to Greenpeace, plastics are not biodegradable, and they break down into microparticles that contaminate the environment. Additionally, only 9% of plastic is recycled. The EU's new regulation on plastic would also aim to make all types of plastic recyclable by 2030, which would hopefully help increase the amount that is recycled, according to Now This Earth News. In other environmental news, citizens in Commerce City, Colorado, reported smelling a bad smell and seeing thick clouds supposedly from a Suncor oil refinery near the city. Officials from the Air Pollution Control Division inspected the refinery but did not report any excessive emissions, malfunction, or incidents at the refinery, although they will continue to monitor the site. The clouds were due to a vapor being created by cold temperatures, and the bad smell was due to sour water transfers. Sour water transfers is where water is treated in oil refinery operations. Information from this story comes from Noelle Phillips, who is a reporter for the Denver Post. Thank you for listening to my environmental news updates. Make sure to stay tuned for national news. Hello. Hey, so I'm having some trouble with my streaming service. Please select from the following options. Can I just talk to a person? Sorry, that is not an option. Please select from the following options. Seriously? You called? No, no, not you. I'm just sick of robots, and I just want to listen to some music. You know what? This is DJ Silent G, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins, operated by actual human beings. In national news, today we're going to take a look at the USA soccer team's performance at the World Cup. At the 2022 Qatar World Cup, which is still currently going on, the United States unfortunately got knocked out of the tournament during the round of 16, but the team did not leave without any success. They put up impressive performances during their matches and faced some well-known teams. The team even surprised many by their impressive and maybe even unexpected skills as well. A lot is going down at this tournament, but let's break down the United States' time at the Qatar World Cup. For the group stage of the World Cup, all of the teams are randomly placed into groups. The United States team was placed into Group B, which also included Iran, Wales, and England. The United States' first match within this group was against Wales. The Wales team is currently ranked 19th in world standings. This is also their team's first time back at the World Cup since 1958. The United States is currently ranked 14th, and this was their first time back at the World Cup since 2014. This match, which many may have expected the U.S. to win easily, did not go as planned. The match ended in a draw. Tim Way scored the United States' only goal during the match. Way is the son of George Way, a world-renowned soccer player and president of Liberia. Throughout this tournament, eyes have been on Way and he did not disappoint. With the help of players like Christian Polizic, Way scored on Wales. In the U.S., many viewers may not view a tie as a success, as sports in the country do not typically end in a tie. And if they do, that's not seen as a particularly good thing. 
In this case, though, the draw between Wales and the U.S. can be seen as a success as it allowed the United States to stay in the running to carry on to the round of 16 knockout stage of the tournament. The team's progression in the tournament depended on their matches against the other two teams in the group, Iran and England. After the U.S. versus Wales match, the United States went on to play England. England is a world-renowned team and is currently ranked fifth in world standings. The last time the U.S. played England and won was in the 1950 World Cup in Brazil. The U.S. has also tied against England once before in the 2020-10 World Cup in South Africa as well. While the United States did not win this match, they can put another draw against England in their books, which is significant. After the United States team's second draw of the tournament, their advancement to the round of 16 came down to their match against Iran. The Iranian team is currently ranked 20th. Iran previously lost their game to England 6-2, but they did win their game against Wales 2-0. The match against Iran kept viewers on the edge of their seats, to say the least. Christian Polizic scored on Iran during the second half, but he took one for the team to do so. After he scored, Polizic, who is one of the United States' star players, could be seen crouched over in pain due to an injury he endured while scoring. Polizic was taken out for the rest of the match, but did end up recovering in time for their match against the Netherlands. The nail-biting win against Iran led the United States to the round of 16, which is the knockout stage of the tournament. This is where the United States played their final match of the tournament against the Netherlands. The United States played the Netherlands last Saturday, who are currently ranked 8th in the world standings. Netherlands won the match 3-1. Heiser Wright scored the United States' only goal in the 76th minute. Although the United States left Qatar without ultimately winning the finals of the tournament, this team still had some notable successes at the World Cup. The United States has qualified and participated in 11 World Cups, five of which, including the 2022 Qatar World Cup, have made it to the round of 16 portion of the tournament. This time around, the United States may not have won the World Cup, but they faced some impressive teams such as England and the Netherlands and held their ground fairly well. The men on this team put up an impressive fight during their matches, which is even more notable since the United States team is one of the three youngest teams at the match. Hopefully, with more time and practice, this team can come back to the 2026 World Cup and take home a win. Thank you for listening to my national news updates. Now stay tuned for CSU Sports Updates with Ewan Pert. I'm Ewan Pert, and welcome to this week's RMR Sports Update. This week, the Rams have three teams competing. The first of those is the men's basketball team. There's a record of 6-3 and three this season. After beating Loyola Marymount and losing to Northern Colorado last week, the team will be heading to Boulder for the big rivalry game later this week and over the weekend. They will be hosting Peru State. Up next is women's basketball, who is 5-3 with a loss to Northern Colorado and a win against Western Michigan last week. The team is looking forward to hosting DU early this week before San Francisco is in town for a game over the weekend. Up next is track and field. After having one player finish in the top five and four players finish in the top ten at the Air Force Holiday Open, the track and field teams will be heading to Colorado Springs at the end of the week for the UCCS Colo Running Company Invitational. The teams won't have any activity after this until the middle of January. I'm Ewan Part. This has been your sports update of the week. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Portia Cook reporting your weather forecast for Tuesday, December 6th. Today was cool and sunny with a high of 49 degrees and a low of 25 degrees. 
Wednesday, you can expect a mix of sunshine and clouds with winds at around 10 miles per hour and a high of 45. Thursday, we will see some clouds in the morning that will give way to sunny skies in the afternoon. Thursday is staying around with those cool temps with a high of 47. And for the rest of this week's weather, you can tune into the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Portia Cook with your KCSU weather report. Information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Portia. And I'd like to thank you, Kira. And finally, we couldn't do this without you. Dear listener, thank you. If you missed any part of today's show, you can find the RMR podcast on kcsufm.com under news or podcast. You can also find us on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to your podcast by searching KCSU News. And with that, we'll see you next time.